Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who may not know, I'm looking around. There are a couple, couple unfamiliar faces. My name is Sean. I'm on staff here at Grace. I direct the youth ministry. Um, and if you haven't been coming for a very long time, um, then you may not know that we're in the book of Acts. Uh, hopefully you do, though. We've been in Acts for a good deal of time. Uh, and what we have learned about are the acts of the Spirit of God through the apostles. Uh, and we've learned of the great things that, that Jesus has done, that God has done through his people. Uh, and hopefully, as we've been learning about the apostles' mission and about their work, about how they are fulfilling the Great Commission, uh, they're fulfilling the mission of Jesus to make disciples of all people, uh, hopefully you are greatly encouraged uh, by their story, the story of of. 11 who became 12 uh, apostles who, who took the gospel and, uh, and for our, our sake are taking the gospel to the entire world. Hopefully you're, you're encouraged by that to know that, that this gospel that started in Jerusalem is now in every continent uh, and very close to being in every language. <laughs> and there are very few relatively speaking, unreached people groups in the world. You ought to be encouraged by that. Uh, God is winning. Uh, the mission of God, the kingdom of God is advancing. And just as Jesus promised, the gates of hell, the gates of death are powerless to stop its advance. Uh, you should be encouraged by that. Hopefully as we go through Acts, uh, the spirit of the Lord is prompting and compelling you uh, and, and is convicting you and causing you uh, as he is causing me to repent uh, for our lack of evangelism, uh, to repent for the fact that it is so easy and we live and we allow ourselves to uh, get caught up in the easy, to get caught up in, in allowing this just to be something we keep in these walls and that stays in the walls of our house. Uh, but rather uh, that the Spirit of God is convicting you to repent of that and to turn to Jesus and to go and to spread the gospel, to share the good news, to make disciples. I, I hope that the Spirit of God is moving in you in that way. And if you were already doing that, I hope that the Spirit of God is giving you more encouragement to do it. Uh, but for most of us, the case is that the Spirit of God is uh, convicting us calling us to repentance for our lack of zeal for evangelism. And if that's the case, then the question that you probably have uh, is, is how? Uh, this is a lot of the reason why we don't evangelize is we're not really sure how. Uh, and, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about e effective gospel witness. Uh, and you can go online, you can go to any Christian bookstore, and you'll find a wealth of books on effective evangelism, effective gospel witness. There are conferences, seminars, sermons, there are a ton of them. Um, in fact, you can even go to uh, David in my office, and, and there are books in there that you can borrow, including Jab Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Uh, this is a great book. I recommend it. Uh, it is a 
philosophical work, J.I. Packer, sets the framework for evangelism within the context that God is Lord, that he is in control of all things. What does evangelism look like? What is it? Where is it birthed from? What is the framework for evangelism for believers? Uh, and he does a great job of it. It's very accessible. It's a very good, very easy read. Uh, it reminds us that while God is sovereign, uh, that does not take away from our responsibility to proclaim truth, to go and to, to, to advance through the gates of Hades and death and bring life to the realm and the land of death. Uh, also, Jerem Bars, and, and you're welcome to come and borrow these uh, if you'd like, or you can purchase them. I, I'd recommend either. Jerem Bars, The Heart of Evangelism. Uh, and basically, this book just goes over the fact that, look, uh, you may have specific callings. You may be called to medicine. You may be gifted and called to hospitality or uh, teaching or preaching, but evangelism is not a call. It's a command. All Christians are commanded to make disciples and commanded to evangelize. And he works through what, it, what heart, what, what heart birds that, where, what the heart of someone who is passionate for the glory of God being advanced to those who are lost looks like. Um, and it's a tremendous book. Uh, the Lord used it greatly to convict me, uh, to show me that my heart was for my glory and not for the glory of Jesus. Um, but even better, I think, than both of those books for me uh, is Will Metzger's Tell the Truth. Uh, and the subtitle uh, pretty much says it all. The whole gospel to, whole, to the whole person by whole people. Um, and I'm going to make a brief disclaimer that the things that I'm going to talk about are not bad. Um, however, Will Metzger, uh, this book is very helpful in broadening our understanding of how to preach the gospel. For a long time, we've understood preaching the gospel as the four spiritual laws or the Romans road, and these things are not bad. Um, in fact, God has used these things to bring many people to Jesus, um, and probably people in this room to Jesus. Um, however, the gospel is bigger than that. Uh, there, there are more ways to tell people about the goodness of Jesus than to get them to understand and believe four succinct rules, four succinct laws, uh, better than trying to even convince them for different people. For some, the best way to do it is to rationalize with them through the gospel. And for others, it's not. The gospel is bigger than that, and Metzger's book helps show that. Basically, the idea is that the gospel is the salve for all of the wounds, all of the scars that sin has inflicted on people. And what we are called to do as evangelists, as people who are called to share the gospel, we're, we are called to not just exegete the Bible, not just divide the text of the Bible and interpret it and find out what it's saying, but to exegete people and to see where they're broken, to find their cracks and their scars and, and where they've been wounded by the curse, and then to show how the gospel, it's effective. Uh, for, for example, for me, uh, I, I grew up without a father. 
So a very effective and compelling communication of the gospel for me was that of Christ as Father, or Christ uh, being the means for adoption. God adopts me as his son. I, I have a father in God. Uh, for some, especially orphans, this is uh, particularly effective. The kids that were with in Haiti and in India, that's what happens. Willio and these people, they come and they become their physical fathers, but they say, look, there's a spiritual father who won't die and who won't leave you or forsake you. Uh, For some, uh, particularly, uh, I'm thinking in my mind of people who are caught up in the sex trade in Africa and around the world. Uh, for, for, for those girls, um, the God who liberates is a particularly compelling gospel to preach to them. Jesus liberates you from your captors and from your bondage. Uh, for those who, who are addicted to drugs, Jesus liberates you from the bondage of addiction. The gospel speaks on so many different levels to so many different people. And, and the call for us is, is not just to have a monologue set that we present, but rather to, to live and to with and to, to exegete and to, to get to know and, and, and to, to see and interpret these, the lives of the people that we work with and that we are neighbors with and that we go to school with and to see and show them how the gospel meets and, and, and cures their ailments. And to tell the truth does that, uh, gives a framework for that so well, um, I, I cannot uh, recommend it highly enough, I think. However, all of these are still just books. Uh, and we, as we look for understanding and how to effectively minister, how to effectively communicate the gospel, uh, we need to look to Scripture, uh, and we see it. And, and thank the Lord that we have the example of the people in Acts, of the apostles, of effective. I mean, this is effective. To go from 12 to tens of thousands, that's effective. Doesn't matter what generation, what decade, what century you live in, that's effective communication. It's effective witness and testimony and proclamation. And we have the example of the apostles. And in fact, what we were talking about before is what the apostles did. They went from city to city, and you don't just have one recorded sermon that Peter and Paul preach. They go to each city, they learn the city, they know the city, and they preach meaningful, contextualized gospel messages to the cities. And people are saved. And today we're going to be looking at the last part of Acts 16. And we're going to pull out uh, three principles for effective gospel witness. Uh, There are a lot of principles. There are a lot of things. But I think these three are underneath it all. And we're we're going to look at those um, in a moment. But first, uh, we're going to pray. So pray with me. God, you prompted Luke to write this account for Theophilus thousands of years ago. And it is powerful for us today. But it's only powerful if your spirit will come 
and illumine our hearts. And so would you send your spirit to open our hearts and our ears so that we can hear your truth. Would you send your spirit to speak through me, to speak your words? God, would you send your spirit to empower us, not just to be hearers of the word, God, but doers also. In Jesus' name, amen. We're not going to be standing and reading because we are going through a pretty long text. However, uh, we will cover it all, and we'll just stop along the way and, and, and make some observations. Uh, let me also say that I was very tempted when I was preparing these slides to put all of the observations in the front uh, because the reality is that they all are evident throughout the entire text, but there are portions of the text that seem to lend themselves more to each specific point. And so I broke them up, but don't think that when we're done with one point, you're not going to see that point again, because it plays out throughout the whole text. So let's go ahead with that and jump in. Uh, we're going to start in Acts 16, verse 6. And they, being Timothy, Silas, and Paul, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The first thing we see about effective gospel witness is that it is spirit-led. Effective gospel witness is spirit-led. We see in this paragraph the immense and and really kind of confusing leading of the Spirit. Uh, The Spirit literally forbids Paul and Timothy and Silas to preach the gospel in a section of the world in Asia. Uh, The Spirit of Jesus, which is also the Holy Spirit, doesn't allow them to go to Mysia, and, 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 and they pass through Troas because the Spirit of God told them, don't preach the gospel there. Gospel, effective gospel witness is spirit-led. And what that means is that it's driven by the spirit. It means that if you are going to be effective in communicating the gospel, you have to hear the spirit. Now, before we go any further, I, I, want, I, I know what you may be thinking. Does this mean then that we shouldn't plan? Are plans bad? And the answer to that is, Absolutely not. You should plan. Plans are not a bad thing. They had a plan. Their plan was to go and to preach the gospel in Asia. That was their plan. The thing is that they were not so married to their plan that they didn't listen to the Spirit. And it makes me think of uh, Proverbs 16. And Proverbs 16.1 says that the plans of the heart are for man. But the answer of the tongue is from God. You make your plans. That's good. 
But ultimately, the Spirit of God allows you or disallows you to continue with those plans. Later on, it says that that a man makes plans in his hearts, but the Lord directs his paths. We plan, we strategize, we vision, we have these, we we dream, we, we make plans to share the gospel with our community. Because if we don't, we won't. We will not go if we do not plan and strategize. We are a people who are so busy that if we don't make plans, we won't do it. And you know it's true. It doesn't even have to be the gospel. It can be anything. Well, I need to pick some stuff up at the grocery store, but if I haven't penciled it into my calendar, it's not happening. The next thing I know, it's 1130 at night, and I'm just not going out. And it's more so with evangelism. Look, if you do not leave your house in the morning intentioning to share the gospel at your work or at your school or in your neighborhood, you're not going to. We like to think that maybe God will present these opportunities, and sometimes he does, and and we'll just, in, in the moment and in the spirit, share the gospel. But how many times has that happened? I'm not saying it doesn't. But practically speaking, how many times has it happened? But when you plan an intention to go out, when you are looking and listening for opportunities to share the gospel, it happens. So make your plans as a church. We make plans as individuals. We make plans. But we remember that gospel-driven, effective witness is spirit-led. So how does the spirit lead? Well, in this first part, it doesn't say. Luke doesn't tell us. All he says is that they were going to go to Phrygia and Galatia, but they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And then they were going to go to Mysia and Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus didn't let them. How did he not let them? What was it? Was it a vision? I, I don't think it was a vision. And the reason I don't think it was a vision is because he has a vision later. And Luke sees fit to tell us about that vision. And the reality is for us, uh, not many of us have visions. Some do. I'm not saying that God doesn't work that way anymore. But it is not the norm. Was it that they were intending on going, but for some reason the city was shut down? The gates were closed? No one could travel in or out? Maybe. We don't know. Sometimes that happens to us. We have plans. We're ready to go, and God says no. There's an airline strike. Missionaries in Spain looking to go to Italy, can't. God disrupts our plans. Was it a still, small voice? Was it a sense of unease in their spirit? Possibly. Sometimes God speaks to us in that way. have these plans, but I do not have peace. Are we listening to the Spirit? Are we listening for the Spirit? And then in this next part, we see how the Spirit, sometimes the Spirit directs through a vision. And this is, this is one of my favorite phrases in Acts. Uh, Luke just cracks me up with this. Paul has this vision. There's a Macedonian man in this vision um, saying, come, preach the gospel to us. 
<laughs> and then Luke says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's a pretty good conclusion, considering you saw a vision. You know, like, it's, it's funny to me, but then I realized, like, if I saw a vision, I'd probably discredit it as indigestion or I don't know what. They didn't sit around and talk about it. Well, what does this vision mean? Should we do it? How does this, how does this work with our plans? They went. They followed the Spirit. The Spirit led them through vision, and they went. And, and just a, a parenthetical note, um, if you are noticing the grammar, in verse 6 it says, they went through the region of Phrygia, and then in verse 10 it says, after Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. At this point in the text, Luke has joined the crew. All right, and so uh, we've got Paul, Silas, Timothy, and now Luke in, in the middle of the mix. And they are directed by, they are led by the Spirit. And so let's move on. In verse 11, so, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Do you think that was an accident? I think they planned that. Like, there is planning in that. They were strategic. They didn't just go to any city in Macedonia. They went to Philippi, the leading city in Macedonia. In fact, it's what they do. They don't just go anywhere. They go to the leading cities of places, and that's where they preach the gospel. And so we see they are planning, but they're also being led by the Spirit. And so they're in Philippi, uh, in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. Uh, We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed in the spirit, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And the reason that I can say to you that Paul was greatly annoyed in the spirit was because how many times when you have been greatly annoyed with somebody, have you turned to them and cast out demons? That's a spirit-led thing. And Paul does it. But when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And the second thing that we see is that effective gospel witness is gospel-centered. That may seem redundant, 
But as we look at the way that we, we think about evangelism, it's plan-centered, and it's, it's delivery-centered, and it's us-centered, and it's logic-centered. But that's not it. Effective gospel witness is gospel-centered. Everywhere that they went, they went only seeking to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And we know this because this, this encounter with Lydia was not intended They didn't mean to see people there that they were going to preach the gospel. They didn't know Lydia was going to be there. They they were on their way, and it was Sabbath, and they wanted to go to the synagogue to pray, and so they went to where a synagogue would be, where they supposed it might be. Uh, There was no synagogue there. Uh, What that means is that there were not 10 Jewish men there. Uh, That's what was necessary for a synagogue, and they weren't there. Uh, but there were women gathered together, uh, Jewish women. And among these Jewish women was Lydia. And Lydia was not a Jew, but the Bible says that she was a worshiper of God. And this is really interesting to me um, because that's a really good thing to be a worshiper of God. And yet, in the very next utterance, we see that the Spirit of God has to open her heart to hear the gospel that Paul preaches so that she might be saved and baptized. All right, and so again, we see that effective gospel witness is spirit-led. We proclaim, but ultimately the spirit opens this woman's heart. Ultimately, the spirit opens up your heart to the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, you don't hear it. But, but what's really interesting to me about this is that we're starting to see that effective gospel witness that is gospel-centered must be Christ-centered. If it's gospel-centered, it's Christ-centered. And to me, there's no greater case in the entire book of Acts for the, the efficacy of nothing but the name of Jesus for salvation. Nothing else saves. Nothing else is effective. Luke describes this woman as a worshiper of God, but she must trust Jesus. That's huge. If we're gospel-centered, that means we are Christ-centered. Christ is at the center of the gospel that we preach. Christ leads us to God. Christ frees us from sin. Christ frees us from bondage. It is about Jesus. And it is for them. And Lydia is saved in her household with her. And then we get another really weird story. And we see this this girl who Luke describes as a slave girl. And there is no better way to describe this girl. Um, she is demon-possessed, which means she is in slavery and bondage to the demonic. She is a slave. But oddly enough, her demon possession has given her a supernatural power of divination and, and, and future-telling. And apparently, it's working, and it's doing well, because she is a slave to men, to owners. Uh, She's a slave girl to them, and she is using this power that she's received uh, for their profit, 
to line their pockets. And we know this because they're really mad when Paul casts the demon out because she loses that power and they're losing their money and they're angry. What we see is that gospel-centered witness, it liberates. The proclamation of Jesus liberates. This slave girl is in captivity. She's in bondage any way you look at it, every way possible. And in a word, the gospel, the spirit of God delivers her, liberates her, from her captors. She's set free. Also, we have this weird question. Not only does she have the power of future seeing, but going back, we have the story of a a girl who's possessed by a demon who starts following apostles of Jesus Christ and saying, hey, these guys are servants of Most High God. What they're saying is the truth. What? In my heart, I'm thinking, I'm not possessed by a demon, and I don't go around proclaiming, hey, look, these guys are servants of Most High God. Hear the gospel. She's following them around for days, and what she's speaking is the truth. But it annoys Paul greatly, and the Spirit moves in Paul so that he casts the demon out of her. And the question is, is why? Why is the demon doing this, and why must Paul cast out this demon and put a stop to this? And I think that the reason that the demon is doing this is because the people know this girl. She's made a lot of money for her masters as someone who practices divination and future telling. And this demon by proclaiming these things and tagging along with the apostles, is making it look like her and the apostles are a team. And Paul understands that there cannot be any team, there cannot be any unity between good and evil. There cannot be any unity between truth and falsity. There cannot be any, you cannot build God's kingdom using the devil's tools. And so while what this girl was speaking was true, it would be very, very, very destructive to believers in the long run to think that the demonic and the spirit-led had some sort of union. Gospel-centered witness has no union with with the demonic, with evil. And so they cast out this demon, and she's freed. And, and let's, let's continue on. Their owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as the Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. These rods are not 
merely rods. Uh, They would have had metal shards sticking out of them. They would have had things attached to them. They would have ripped the flesh. Uh, It was not uncommon for these beatings alone to kill somebody. Uh, Clearly, it didn't kill Paul and Silas. Uh, But they were beaten, uh, and and it it was not pretty. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all of the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And, they took the, and he took them the, the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come and take us out. The police reported these things to the magistrate, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Uh, The third and last thing we see is that effective gospel witness suffers well. It suffers well. They've shared the gospel with this girl. Uh, They've freed her from demonic possession. Her owners are angry. And they don't say, hey, throw these guys in jail. They delivered this girl from bondage. (laughs) They liberated her. No, they lie. And they say, these men are foreigners. Uh, And they don't do what we do. They don't honor and cherish what we are supposed to honor and cherish. They're not like us. They're disturbing the peace. Throw them in jail. Now here's the thing. We find out later in the passage that Paul and Silas are indeed Roman citizens. And so that does kind of beg the question, why didn't they just say it? Why didn't they say, hey, stop beating us. We're Roman. We're Roman citizens. Don't throw us in jail. Um, And the answer to that question is we we have no idea. We really don't know. Um, 
Lots of people have different speculation. Most people think it just happened all so fast that they didn't really have time to say it. Uh, there's actually a couple people, there are a few people who think that, uh, that Paul somehow knew that the Philippians would experience great suffering. And, and he writes to them in their suffering in Philippians. And he did not want to write to them and present himself to them as one who was, who was immune to suffering, who did not have to endure suffering. That sounds beautiful. I don't know if it's true. Um, the bottom line is, what we do know is that the reason they didn't say it is because the Spirit of God did not let them for whatever reason. And we know that the Spirit of God did not let them because they didn't do it. And they were beaten. And they were thrown in jail and placed in stocks. And you have to understand that these stocks were not comfortable things. Uh, These stocks uh, would not give them much room to move, actually any room at all. When they had to sleep, they would, people would have to sit down to sleep or they would have to lie on their backs with their feet up in the socks and they had little to no ability to adjust themselves, to reposition themselves, to avoid cramping. So if you have been beaten and you are in these stocks, it is, it is ridiculously uncomfortable. It's, 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 it's horrible. They are suffering. Luke doesn't go into much detail about their suffering, but it's obvious that they are suffering here in prison. He doesn't talk about their angst, but we know based on what's happening that they're suffering. And what are they doing while they're suffering? The Bible says they're praying and singing. How do we suffer? Do you suffer well? When you suffer, are you calling out praises to God? See, this is suffering well, and it's spirit-led. It has to be. You don't do that on your own. This is not a call for you to muster up power to praise God in suffering. It's a reminder that the spirit empowers you to do that. But when they're doing it, what, what, what we have to realize is this is also gospel-centered. Because as they're singing and praying, the prisoners are hearing them. And not only are the prisoners hearing them, I believe that the jailer was hearing them. I know he was hearing them. Because after this earthquake, and after they could go, the jailer walks in and sees that they're still there. And he doesn't say what I would say. Doesn't ask what I would say. I would ask, why are you still here? You know, to which they probably would have responded with the gospel. But that's what I, what are you doing here? If it were me and I was in stocks and I was in jail and there was an earthquake and I was free, I'd be already in some river like Andy Dufraining it. Like it would be freedom. It would be great. But they were there in the prison still. But that's, and, and that's not what he asks. What he asks is what must I do to be saved? He heard the songs of joy. He lived in a culture of many gods where you pay your gods and you sacrifice to your gods to be protected from the very thing that they were enduring, suffering. And yet in suffering, these Christians are not saying, God, we went, we did what you said, we prayed. Why are we in jail? Why did we just get... No, they're praising God. They're singing hymns of praise to God. Imagine being in a prison in 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 some closed country to the gospel in the Middle East and, and you're, 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 you're singing, my chains are gone, I've been set free. What, what does that communicate? What does that speak? 
to, to the jailers. To the, uh, think about the way that they suffer, preaches the gospel, and this jailer hears it. And he asks, what must I do to be saved? And they tell him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God, him and his entire family do. And not only that, I personally, this is just speculation, but I personally believe that, that while they were singing and praying and interacting with the other prisoners, that they were saved too. Um, and the reason is, I think that the Spirit of God didn't allow the prisoners to leave either. Because if any prisoner had left, he would be responsible with his life. Um, but all the prisoners stayed. And the Spirit of God moves and saves Are we suffering well? We've seen it time and time again in Acts that the Spirit of God uses the suffering of his people to advance his kingdom, to advance his church. Do you suffer well? People still do suffer well. As I read this text, my heart thinks about the fact that Um, that since I started this sermon, about 40 Christians have been imprisoned and that eight or nine of them have been tortured and beaten and that four or five more have been martyred for the gospel. That while we sit here Hearing this story, our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering for the gospel. And it prompts me, it should prompt us to go share the gospel, to go boldly, endure whatever it is we think we're enduring, and endure it well. But it also prompts me. to to call you to remember your brothers and sisters. And we're going to do that right now. We're going to spend some time in silent prayer thanking God that he saw fit to glorify and honor our brothers and sisters by allowing them to share in the suffering of Jesus.